Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. It's great to be back here, and I assume that by this time most of you have had breakfast, so you are mostly awake. So just to start us off with, who here loves to travel? Just give me a show of hands. I don't believe this crowd. Surely there are more people here who love to travel. Most of us do, right? Because it's so great to get out of Singapore to go to a different country, to see new things, and to immerse in a completely new atmosphere. And as you're sitting here in maybe the Italian countryside, you are sipping wine on a terrace overlooking the vineyards, and then you're enjoying yourself, and suddenly you hear a voice floating in the air that says, Aya, why like that? And then inwardly you cringe. Because although you came to Italy to escape Singapore, no matter where you go, you cannot escape Singaporeans. We are really, really, really easy to spot when we go overseas because we speak very distinctively. Our accent is distinctive, the grammar is distinctive, and like super-efficient Singaporeans, Singlish is also super-efficient. Take for example, I don't know la, I don't know le, I don't know ma, I don't know me. They all mean completely different things. All my favorite is this. Can is can. It makes no sense, but it also makes perfect sense. So Singlish makes you very, very distinctly Singaporean. So here's a question. What makes us distinctively Christian? What makes us so distinct as a Christian? And if I ask you this question, maybe some of you might reply, truth. Or some of you might reply, love. Some of you might reply, hope. So for me, what I would add is that all of these questions, all of these answers are correct. But what I would add is that what makes us most distinct is actually holiness. Because God is described as holy, holy, holy. So God as holy God doesn't just mean that he is morally perfect. Although, yes, he is. For God to be holy God, means that he is completely and qualitatively another kind of being, totally distinct, totally like no other. So for us to be Christians, to be holy, it means that because we belong to this holy God, we should be like him who is like no other. We belong to God in a special and distinctive way. That is what makes us holy. So as Christians, we are to live distinctly because we are holy. So this is how Daniel chapter 7 describes the people of God. We are described as the holy ones in at least four times in this chapter. So coming back to Daniel, we are going through the book of Daniel and we spent last two weeks in the chapter 7. So coming to chapter 7, in the last two weeks, we saw the two apocalyptic visions. There was the vision of the beast, and then there was the visions of the Ancient of Days. And then there was the interpretation of these visions. And last week, Pastor Sharon reminded us that the purpose of apocalyptic writing is to unveil spiritual reality. 
so that we can see beyond our physical, see beyond the present circumstances to believe that in the final end, God wins. And we, as God's holy people, will share in this everlasting kingdom. But in the meantime, we have to endure the great war. But because we are God's holy people, we not only persevere, but we persevere distinctly. So fantastic beasts and how we overcome them. We do that by being a discerning people, anchored in truth, and we remain distinct by being a persevering people, assured in hope. So would you join me in prayer as we turn this time over to the Lord? Our eternal God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you speak. Holy Spirit, would you illumine us, transform us today as you renew our minds. May we hear you and may we obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So firstly, let's take a look at why I'm focusing on the topic as God's holy ones today. And we'll go through about four to five verses in chapter seven that speak about that. So let's start. Verse 18. But the holy people of God, of the Most High, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And let's move on to verse 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times and half a time. And moving on to verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. And this is how we are described as God's holy ones in here. And this is how we are meant to share in God's everlasting kingdom, when the Ancient of Days comes and we have persevered to the final end. In the Old Testament, we know that there is this term, holy ones. And in the Old Testament, this term can also refer to angels in other parts of the Bible. But it can also refer to people. So if I look at the broader context of Daniel, and I look at what is described of the Jews in chapter 8, which is ahead of us, and chapter 11 ahead of us, it implies for me that the holy ones here refer to God's people. So now that we've sorted that out, let's talk about the fantastic beasts. What then are the fantastic beasts that wage war against God's holy ones? Not these ones. Not these fantastic beasts from the movie, even though we reference the movie title. The movie speaks of a magical world in which all sorts of magical beasts exist, and some are good and some are bad. But this is totally different from the awful mutant beasts that are in Daniel chapter 7, which represent the four kingdoms. So the four beasts represent four kingdoms. In our view, the four beasts representing the four kingdoms are most likely to be Babylon, Medea, Persia, and Greece. These are actual historical kingdoms. Some do think that perhaps the fourth kingdom refer to Rome. But to be honest, whatever view you hold, the theological main point of the four beasts is not about ascribing each beast to a particular historical empire. 
Because from the context of the entire Bible, there are also apocalyptic beasts elsewhere. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, this is what it says of the beast. Verse 7 says, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And it goes on to say in verse 10, If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So we can see that there is a larger theological point to these beasts, to these apocalyptic beasts. And these beasts are allowed to make war on the saints. And there are repeated mentions of this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the theological point is that while the four kingdoms have historical correspondence to actual kingdoms in Daniel, it is really more helpful to see these beasts and these four kingdoms as repeated hermeneutical patterns of escalation to the end. Pastor, what does this mean? It simply means that it is going to be repeated again and again with greater and greater intensity until the very end. This pattern is going to be repeated again and again with increasing intensity until the very end. So in our world today, we will see this escalating pattern of the beast making war on the saints of God. So last week, Pastor Sharon shared about persecution being faced by Christians around the world today. And persecution is real. God's holy ones are faithfully persevering and standing firm in their faith in a very dark world and against a lot of opposition. But we live here in Singapore. So the war can feel, honestly, very remote. For many of us, I think we find it very, very hard to relate. Because our problem, perhaps in affluent Singapore, where we have freedom of worship, is a different problem. Maybe our problem is that we cannot really discern what the bees really are in our world today. Maybe for us who live in this bubble, this Singapore bubble, the war is more covert than overt. Think along with me, okay? How did ancient empires wage war? They wage war by conquering kingdoms, conquering nations, they would subjugate its people, they would rule over them, and they go by sheer firepower, they would overpower others with their military might. But in real life, people are not only conquered by sheer firepower. Over time, they are assimilated into their conqueror's language, into their customs, into their religion, into their way of life. So, for example, after the Roman Empire, you know that it conquered its way through multiple swaths of geographical territories, and as they conquered their way through cultures and societies, these cultures would eventually, over time, become Romanized. And the people there would begin to identify themselves as Roman rather than with their previous culture. So over time, those who are conquered, they forgot they were once not Roman. The lines between who they used to be and who they have become is just way too blurred. It's far too blurred. And perhaps for some of them, they don't even remember that they have been conquered. Sometimes, kingdoms are so insidious that we don't even realize that we have been conquered. Sometimes, kingdoms are so insidious that we don't even realize that we have been conquered. 
So drawing application to our world today, how might these kingdoms look like? How might be some ways in which we have been conquered or assimilated into the world? Let me suggest one beast. Maybe one beast that might have gained a little bit more traction and acceptance in society today is hedonism. What does it mean? It means to let our appetites rule us. What does the world think about appetites? What's wrong with appetites? What's wrong with having appetites? After all, our appetites are a natural part of us, and I should have the freedom to satisfy these natural and physical desires. For example, many Singaporeans don't go on holidays to sightsee anymore. The main agenda is not sightseeing, the main agenda is food. They may plan an entire holiday itinerary around food trails and exciting restaurants. Okay, I see some sniggers there. Um, you can relate, right? What about the enduring popularity of mukbang videos? Do you know what mukbang videos are? It's where, on YouTube or shorts or whatever, they go and they eat enormous amounts of food, like enormous amounts of food, and the number of views on these mukbang videos are crazy. So they just move from restaurant to restaurant, they just eat enormous amounts of food. So it originated in South Korea, but it's really pretty widespread on social media, and people seem to really love watching other people eat lots and lots and lots of food. What about the increasing number of sex-themed shows on Netflix? You scroll through Netflix, you can see straight away what sort of things are coming up. Or perhaps the growing indifference to hookup culture, casual affairs, and adultery. Everyone's doing it. It's become a part of the way of life here now. And what's the big deal about all these things? So my point really is, not to say, don't go on JB on a food hunt to eat seafood. Okay, go and eat bakute. Just kidding. Go and eat whatever you want. Because the point is not about that. The point is not even about how prevalent indulging our appetites is. Because I think the deeper problem is not just how prevalent it is. The deeper problem is how our thinking around our appetites have shifted. The prevalence merely shows how our attitudes, our perspectives, our thinking has fundamentally shifted on such things, how they have fundamentally drifted. And then now our appetites become our primary drivers. That is the definition of hedonism. I just want to have fun. I just want to indulge. I just want to feel satisfied. And that is my highest aim in life. So the way in which we think about our appetites have drifted from God's truth and God's intent. And you know what? That is the strategy of the beast. Let's look at verse 25. If you look at the highlighted words, he shall speak words against the Most High, and they shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given to his hand for a time, times and half a time. So speaking words against God, against the Most High, that has to do with lies and deception and rebellion and changing the times. And here, the times probably refer to the ritual feasts that has to do with the worship of God. So the beast is also aiming at our worship of God and then changing the law, again, shifting the truth of God. So through lies and deception, the beast wages war on us. 
and it's to turn us away from our faithful worship of God and our faithful belonging to God. And the strategy that he uses is to attack the truth. And so we drift and become more and more assimilated in the world. Generally, it is quite easy for us to spot an outright lie, right? So when I do strength training, I can deadlift 100 kg. Some of you are looking very confused right now. And the fact that you're looking confused right now means you think it cannot be true. That's very smart of you. For the rest of you, thank you for being so kind to even think and consider that I might be even able to do strength training. But you see, half-truths are much harder to spot. So what kind of half-truths might we begin to start believing about hedonism? Maybe something like, only my soul matters, so it doesn't make a difference if I abuse my body and just indulge in whatever I want. Or, God gave me these sexual desires and they're natural. As long as I have no feelings for the other person, it doesn't count as adultery. Or, as long as I'm not harming anyone, it's not sin. So these all have a grain of truth, but they're all essentially half-truths. So, a soul-searching question now for us. I'm just going to give us a few moments to think. What might be some half-truths that we have slowly assimilated into our belief system over the years if we've never actually really, really thought about it? I'm just going to give us a few quiet moments just to reflect on that. So as God surfaces that up to you, just keep that in mind. And now we're going to think a little bit about how we can spot half-truths. How can we discern deceptions? How do we train ourselves to do so? And the only way in which we know how, I know how, is to renew our minds daily through the Word and the Spirit. The only way I know how to spot half-truths is to renew my mind daily by the Word and Spirit. So we all know. Reading God's word is important. But the habit itself is not the main thing. The daily habit is not the main thing. The daily habit helps us to make space in our overcrowded minds and overcrowded lives so that the Holy Spirit can speak through the word and spirit. And as we hear and obey God's voice, our minds become renewed and our lives become transformed. Little by little, day by day, the deposits of truth in us that renews our mind. It transforms us little by little, day by day. And I can tell you honestly, friends, there is no shortcut to renewing our minds. So you haven't done it in a while, maybe try starting 10 minutes a day. Maybe start a Bible reading plan with a CG mate or with a friend or with your spouse or even with your children. Or you can try a Lecture 360 app um, and that's available. And these are all great options. Nikki Gumbel, um, his devotions are also great options. And as you begin this five to 10 minutes every single day, I would like you to include a little prayer into it as well. And here is the prayer. Pray, Holy Spirit, illumine me. Transform me as you renew my mind this day. Include the discipline of asking the Holy Spirit to renew our minds daily when we read God's Word. Try it. Try it. 
And you might be surprised at how God answers and honours this simple prayer. And as we do this, the Holy Spirit helps us to grow in discerning the truth of God and to daily renew our minds. So this is how we remain distinct as God's Holy One. This is how we remain holy as God's Holy Ones, by being a discerning people who are deeply, deeply anchored daily on God's truth, and also by being a persevering people deeply assured in hope. Last week, I visited a friend's new home for a housewarming, and we had to drive down a very famous road. Some of you may know it. And this road is called South Buena Vista Road. Why is it famous? It's famous for being horrible, okay? It's horrible to drive through, and it's even more horrible to cycle up. So in my husband's fit era, he used to wake up very early for road cycling, and this would be one of those 50-kilometer rides that he would take. And this one in particular is not the steepest road, okay? It's not the steepest road in where you can cycle in Singapore, but it is unique because it has many, many, many bends. So you have no idea when the road is going to end. You cycle, 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 round the bend, then you cycle, cycle, cycle some more, and you round another bend, and then you cycle some more, and like, huh, the bend is still there. And it's difficult for a cyclist to push through because you cannot see when it's going to end. So this is what's happening in Daniel chapter 7 as well, the struggle for the people of God. God's holy ones feel very long and very never-ending. So again, coming back to verse 25, if you look at the highlighted words again, to wear out the saints of the Most High, and the saints will be given into his hand, the hands of the beast, for a time. And to wear out the saints implies that they have been going through the struggle for a while, and God doesn't seem to deliver them immediately, nor even very soon, nor soon. In fact, it appears that for a long time, God's vindication seems super far away. It does not come, and the bees appear to win. And if you look at verse 21, it says, As I looked, this horn made war of the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. God does win in the final end. The ancient of days comes and the Son of Man comes again and judgment and vindication at the final end is very, very sure. But as the saints are going through it, it definitely feels like the beasts are prevailing and winning. So in our world today, what kind of escalating intensity can you see? So I think it is obvious from the news around the world that extreme climate conditions is what's happening everywhere, whether it's in Europe, in America, in India, all parts of Asia. These extreme climate conditions are increasing due to irresponsible human behaviour. You can also see escalating geopolitical tension due to also awful human behaviour. But you know, another trend I see in recent years really is escalating economic evils. You know, there seems to be increasing corporate scandals that is catastrophic levels, where immense corporate greed, they drive super unethical behaviour that harms millions of people. So one grievous example is a company called Purdue Pharma in America. So it made a very, very addictive painkiller called OxyContin. 
So what it did was it drastically downplayed its addictive qualities to regulators, to doctors and to patients. And at the same time, they marketed it very aggressively by soliciting doctors who would prescribe these painkillers at very high volumes. So it was one of the major drivers of the opioid addiction crisis in America. And this addiction crisis in America over the past 20 years has caused the deaths of more than half a million people. So eventually, Purdue Pharma was dissolved and made bankrupt about two years ago, but the impact of its greed lives on. Lives on in the lives of all these who have been affected, and it lives on in the ongoing addiction crisis. And the family who owns it may never be held fully accountable for it in the justice system. So when you hear story after story after story of institutional and structural evil like this, harm that is caused and driven by organizations, by corporations, macro systems, we ordinary people, we sometimes feel like plankton. And you ask, what is plankton? Plankton are tiny organisms that live in the water, whether in the seas or in the oceans, and they drift along the way. In other words, plankton is fish food. Okay? At the very, very, very bottom of the food chain, the tiniest organisms of the food chain. And we feel helpless in the face of widespread evil that we feel like we can't do anything about, nor can we control. So in the big scheme of things, sometimes we feel like we're just fish food. Om nom 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 by the predators out there, right? And for many of us, in the face of this, we feel very helpless or we feel very resigned and we try not to think too much about the widespread evil because it's too overwhelming. So, oh, another mass shooting in America? Or another money laundering scandal? Or another human trafficking ring? Or it's too much, it's too overwhelming. Better to just watch funny cat videos, okay? It's too much. Let's just ignore what's going on in the world out there. But for some of us, even if we want to ignore it, we can't. And for some of us, we experience it personally. We are in the midst of everything. At some of our workplaces, we really feel like fish food. So how would you remain holy and distinct in this kind of circumstances, in this kind of situation? Recently, I had a lunch with a young adult. Let's call him Lionel. So Lionel works in an industry where it's like cowboy town. Anything goes as long as it makes money. So not only is the industry super volatile, it is also super cutthroat. So you think of those Chinese or Korean dramas where there's an imperial court and it's filled with court officials with power plays and scheming factions. You throw in a few vicious concubines, throw in a few unethical and incompetent eunuchs who are also double agents, then you get the picture, okay? So add to this super toxic culture, you have unreasonable work requests that is so difficult to fulfill, a 50 to 60% retrenchment rate with no reason given as to why this person is being let go, why this team is being let go, and when it's going to happen with no information given, it is no wonder that he feels exactly like fish food. So as you can imagine, if you put yourself in the shoes, it's a huge struggle every day. Every day, he's in constant battle mode, trying to anticipate what might happen today. Okay, how can he protect himself? How can he protect his friends? Or what even might happen to his friends and colleagues? So all this on top of the actual work that he has to do, which is a lot, it is emotionally exhausting, and he is just depleted. 
And I told him, it sounds like you're living through Daniel 7 every day. So this young man, at first, he was praying, Lord, please, just get me out of here. He did try to change jobs, but every door was shut in such a crazy way that eventually he thought, God must have allowed it, there must be some reason. But it came to a stage where he's just thinking, it's okay, you can get rid of me, just give me the severance package, it doesn't make any sense why I am still here. But with no real answer of deliverance in the way that he wanted or hoped for, this man's prayer began to change. Because God was surely and tangibly present in each of his daily battles. And so he began to wonder, is God trying to show me something else? So over time, as he continued to seek God, his prayer changed from, Lord, deliver me, to, Lord, just give me just the grace to just show up. Lord, give me the grace to just show up every day. It seems like a trivial prayer at first, doesn't it? God, give me the grace to just show up. But this prayer, as I reflected on it, I was deeply moved because it revealed something very deep and very powerful. Because this is a prayer of a man who has come to the end of himself. It is a prayer of a man who recognizes that he has nothing left. It's a prayer of a man whose only hope is in God. And when you have nothing left, all you can depend on is Christ alone. And to him, when he experienced that God's mercies are new every morning, Christ is enough for the day. Christ is enough for the day. When we go through what seems to be insurmountable struggles, the grace that God gives is Christ and Christ alone. Because, friends, ultimately, what we are called to persevere through is not just powering through our circumstances. Ultimately, we are persevering to trust. We are persevering to hope in God and in God alone. And as we do this, little by little, step by step, day by day, it is a journey of dying, of surrender, of trust. And God uses this journey to do something very special and very deep. He uses this journey to deepen the Christ life in us. And so the reward of persevering, persevering to this dying journey is Christ. So our ultimate hope is not in whether our circumstances change, because they may not. Evil may prevail. But our ultimate hope is in the Son of Man who has come and will come again. And this Son of Man came, inhabited humanity. He encountered the greatest evil and he submitted himself to the greatest injustice and the greatest evil the world had ever seen. But through his faithful perseverance on the cross, Christ made it possible for the world, for all of us, every single one of us, all of you sitting here in this sanctuary today, to have hope. So as we ask God, God, give me the grace to just show up. As we ask God for his grace, we are also yielding to this same journey of dying to our rights, dying to our sin, dying to our human strength, dying to our ways. And in this willingness to die, God uses it to deepen 
the Christ life in us. So this is how we persevere as God's holy ones, living distinctly. And we remain distinct, we remain holy as we discern the truth of God, as we persevere and endure through incredible evil. And the only way in which we can live as God's holy ones is with Christ living in us. So as I invite the worship team to come up, I have picked this song. It is not a familiar song, but it speaks of Christ being our reward. And as you sit there, because I believe deeply that God has spoken, would you let the words of this song where our hope and our reward is in Christ alone, minister deeply to you. Because some of us are going through struggles that no one else can comprehend. Some of us are overwhelmed in a way that nobody else can understand. But as you submit yourself back into the hands of God and ask, I need Christ and Christ alone. I need Christ and Christ alone. Christ is enough for the day. He deepens the Christ life in each and every one of us. So let this song minister deeply into your heart and spirit right now.
The words of the song says, I count everything as loss. I count everything as loss. And for some of us, God is bringing us through a journey of emptying. To recognise that what we are seeking and what we've built our lives around is but dust. And in the face of overwhelming evil, we no longer have the resources within, we no longer have the strength within, we no longer have enough capacity to even take another step. But today Jesus says, I desire to deepen the Christ life in you because I am the source of life. I am the source of strength. I am the source of hope. I am the source of peace, even in the midst of indescribable evil and pain and suffering. And he says, I want to deepen the Christ life in you this day. For some of us here, we may not know Jesus, meaning that you do not have a living relationship with Jesus. And as you hear, and as you hear from God today, God is inviting you. God is inviting you to have hope. Even if you feel like plankton, even if you feel like fish food, even when you feel overwhelmed, God has made it possible for you to have hope through His Son, Jesus Christ. So with all eyes closed, if there's anyone here who would like to know of this hope for the very first time, would you just raise your hand? I would love to pray for you. Is there anyone here? For most of us who are Christians, we have forgotten what it means to be holy, to be distinct. And the way in which we live in this world, the way in which we discern truth and the way in which we persevere through is distinct because we are holy. And the only way in which we can be holy and remain holy is with Christ living in us. So I'm going to ask us to do something slightly different today. For those of you who are here, you might be sitting with a friend or you might be sitting with a CG member. I would like you to turn to one another in groups of twos or threes and begin to minister to each other in prayer through the various situations and circumstances in your life because I want everybody to be prayed for today and you all are ministers of the gospel and of reconciliation to one another as well. So if you can get into groups of twos and threes, what I want you to pray for each other is that whatever this person is going through, that God will deepen, deepen the Christ life in each of them so that we will remain distinct as God's holy people. So I'm going to open this time up for a time of prayer and ministry among yourselves. So turn to one another and pray and minister.
We're glad you had spent some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. You can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.